Hi, this is Oliver Stone. I've just done Books on Pod with Trey Elling about my memoir, Chasing the Light. It was a very interesting set of questions Trey asked, and I think you'll enjoy the show. Hello, readers. Nico Vorobioff is a writer whose first book is a modern and historical look at illegal substances. It's called Dope World, Adventures in the Global Drug Trade, and you can get it now wherever books are sold. Nico, thank you for the time. How you doing? Yeah, I'm good. So, Nico, you came at this book as a former dealer. What was that life like, and why did you stop slinging? Well, originally, I was born in Russia, or it was the USSR back then, and I never really fit in at school. So that's what drew me to the, uh, well, first it was like the illegal rave scene. So, you know, it'd be like a couple hundred people somewhere in the woods or in an abandoned warehouse somewhere, all off their tits on ecstasy and LSD and shrooms and all that stuff. So I was mostly selling ecstasy at raves. That was kind of my thing. Eventually, I moved from the small town where we were in England to London. I went to university in London, and I set up a little operation there, and I kind of grew and grew, and it was mostly weed by that point. Eventually, I had like a couple of other guys selling weed for me as well. But then all it took was one stupid mistake for it to come crashing down. Us criminals, they have to be lucky all the time. The police only have to be lucky once. <laughs> so what happened was I was on the tube. That's what we call the metro there. And I actually, I even tell people, don't take anything on the tube. There are dogs in the tube. Because one thing they like to do, or they like to do at least back then, stand on top of the escalators to the metro with a couple of sniffer dogs. Then it's like an easy way for them to get a couple of arrests in each night without really doing much work. But that day, I was in a rush, so I thought, the hell with this. I put a couple of wraps in my back pocket, and I just set off. And it just so happened that there were dogs at that station. And it was like that point, I couldn't turn around and run down the escalators. I looked suspicious as hell. So I was taking a gamble on those dogs just being for show or whatever. Like, they're bored. They lost their attention. We went past their attention span. Unfortunately, that was not the case. And I got a two and a half year sentence for supplying class A narcotics. You know what really bugs me is that I actually got off at the wrong station. My plan was just to get off, go outside, check where I was actually supposed to go, and then check, catch the next train. So if I actually got to where I was supposed to be going, we probably wouldn't be talking right now. How was prison? For me, I didn't really have much trouble from the other inmates. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I was polite for everyone. Maybe because I didn't necessarily look like a pusher. I might be, but they didn't know that. So for me, like my main issue was mental. So like being locked up in a cell, it was up to 23 and a half hours a day sometimes because there were staff shortages. And having way too much time to think. One plus side of it was I got to do a lot of reading. I mean, I read a little bit on the outside. I went to university and all that. But I didn't get into reading as like a hobby until then. So I read two books which really got me thinking about the bigger pictures. The first one was a book called El Narco, which is like a history of the Mexican narco war. And the other one was, I know if you guys have heard about it in the States, but it's called Mr. Nice. It's by this guy, Howard Marks, who was like a big hash smuggler in the 70s and 80s. 
And eventually he got caught and he ends up doing seven years in American prison. So those two books, they really got me thinking about the bigger picture. And I also wrote a lot of letters to the outside. And a lot of my friends told me the letters I wrote were funny. It's like a strange take on prison life. Like I'd always compare people I saw there to like celebrities. Like, oh, okay, yeah, like this guy looks like Rick Ross or whatever. So that eventually led me to writing when I was outside. And eventually I hooked up with the agent who actually represented Howard Marks. So his agent became my agent. And that's eventually what landed me the book. So you break recreational drugs down into five different categories. What are those five categories? So there's stimulants, that's cocaine, also coffee and crystal meth. Coffee and crystal meth are in the same category. There's depressants, that's mostly alcohol and sleeping pills. Opiates, which is basically stuff that comes from opium. Cannabis or cannabinoids, derivatives of cannabis. And hallucinogens as well. There's uh, psychedelics, basically. You know, in thinking about how I wanted to organize this conversation, I felt like I could go a couple of different ways. I could go with each drug category, or I could kind of do it how you did it in terms of your world travels, where you did really travel all around the globe visiting uh, some different places that are crucial in the history or perhaps in modern times, what is going on with this dope world that we live in. Where was the first place that you actually traveled to in researching this book, Nico? I think the first place really was 2016. That was South America, specifically Colombia, Cuba, and Brazil, and Peru. That was just before I had the idea to write the book, but I made like a couple of notes here and there. So the stuff that I saw in Colombia is in the book. So in Colombia, you actually spent some time with the revolutionary armed forces. What was it like hanging with Latin America's most formidable guerrilla army? You know, it was kind of surreal because they had just started opening up these tourist camps because they just signed a peace deal with the government at that time. They had these resettlement camps where they were allowed to live because a lot of them, they were too used to sort of the guerrilla lifestyle, you know, like running through the jungle and picking out scorpions from your boot and things like that. They weren't used to city life. They preferred to live with their comrades somewhere out in the sticks. But obviously they needed money as well. Communist guerrillas need money too. So what they did was they opened the camp up to visitors and it's a really odd tourist attraction. It's really hard to find them for some reason because they don't advertise much. So when I went looking for them, I had to go some really roundabout way. I had to call up like the local tourist board. I had to find some Australian who spoke Spanish to get him to translate everything for me. So they're not on TripAdvisor is what I'm trying to say. But you get there and it's a really unique experience. Like they show you around. You can pretty much ask them anything because they're very open. So I obviously asked them about protecting the coca plantations and all that. Unfortunately, uh, what's happening now in Colombia with the new government is like the peace treaty is falling apart. So gradually some of the guerrillas are leaving these camps. They're rejoining like dissident rebel groups to take the fight up again. One thing that happened was a few months after I left the FARC camp, I heard that actually two of the rebels or former rebels, a young couple, they went out of the camp. And they got attacked by gunmen, and actually their uh, baby daughter was killed. You mentioned visiting Peru. 
that included going on an ayahuasca trip and making the voyage to Machu Picchu. What drug was the secret to the Inca's success with Machu Picchu and so many other things that they were doing hundreds and hundreds of years ago? In most of North America and Europe, when we think about coca, like the coca plant, we think cocaine. It's not actually cocaine. You would need a lot of coca leaves to make cocaine. What coca is, it's actually a sacred plant of the people who lived in the Andes, the mountains of South America. And in some ways, coca is what built their civilization. So everything revolved around coca. So like the priests would give them offerings, like the warriors would chew it before battle. And the Inca Empire, pretty much their entire economy, which captured the whole western coast of South America, sorry, ran on coca. Which is why these days, you see like a place like Bolivia in Peru, there's so many peasant uprisings. Like whenever the government tries to send in the army to eradicate coca because they used to make cocaine, it's not because they're using it to make cocaine, it's because it's like a sacred plant. So that's like the equivalent of say someone going to to wine country in California and uprooting all the vineyards, you know? It's like people would be pissed off if that happened. So as far as your trip to Brazil goes, Brazil, at least here in America, has a reputation of being a place that's not very safe. Was that your experience? Yeah, I had several trips to Brazil. There's one, it didn't make it into book because I went after the book because my girlfriend was Brazilian. The first couple of times I, w- I was in Rio, nothing happened. It was completely fine. But then the last time I went, I got held at gunpoint twice in one month. I also got bitten by dogs twice in one month. Actually, it was the same dog both times. He just really didn't like me. <laughs> yeah, the first time in Brazil, that was, uh, I got held at gunpoint. That was a robbery. So we were coming back in a taxi, me and my girlfriend, And I was drunk, and we're just pulling into this petrol station. So I think, oh, we're just going to go get some gas. But actually, those four kids came out pointing pistols at us. They just told us to hand over their stuff. And they were pretty calm, you know? They weren't, like, shouting or, like, threatening us or anything. This wasn't their first rodeo, you know what I mean? Hmm. So I gave them about $40 worth and my bus card. And they were like, telefono, telefono. And I was like, now telefono. I had my phone stashed like in the back of my jeans. When they patted me down, they couldn't find it. I didn't actually recommend doing this. I only thought this was a good idea because I was drunk. But somehow I got lucky and they didn't check me properly. The second time I got held at gunpoint was I was coming back to my girlfriend's neighborhood on my own in a taxi and we had the windows rolled up. So you couldn't see who's inside. And basically in Rio, they've got two kinds of gangsters. They've got the drug cartels, which control a lot of the favelas. And they got this other thing called militia. So militia are basically like corrupt off-duty cops. They move to a neighborhood. They get rid of the drug traffickers. They go around to like the locals and they say, hey, you know, it'd be nice if you guys chipped in for some security every now and then. A couple of weeks later, they come around again and say, you know, hey, nice ice cream stand you got there. Be ashamed if it all melted. Those are the guys that controlled my girlfriend's neighborhood. So we pulled up just outside her house. It was about 3 a.m., 4 a.m. This dude just steps out of the shadows, dressed all in black, black baseball cap, black jeans, black t-shirt. He's pointing a gun in my direction, shouting something in Portuguese. We slowly roll down the window. I've just got my hands up. And I say, esto gringo, no falo português, which means I'm a gringo, I don't speak Portuguese. He sees me, he realizes who it is. He just laughs, puts his gun away, and he's like, yeah, go on then. 
Wow. When it comes to Rio, I'm not sure about other cities, but in Rio, I think as a tourist, it's more dangerous going around to the, the tourist spots like Copacabana. People there know that's where all the rich gringos go. Mm. Whereas if you go into like a militia area or a drug cartel area, at least in parts of Rio, there's kind of a sense like they're just here to buy drugs, just like leave them alone. We don't want any unnecessary trouble in our patch. You write that Brazil's drug war, much like in the U.S., is really connected to race and class. Is there an obvious example of a country where the drug war doesn't impact poor minorities more adversely? It's a good question. Okay, so put it this way. So right now in the Philippines, they've got this president called Rodrigo Duterte, who's basically a psychopath. And I don't like saying that like someone is like Hitler because I think that gets overused you know like whenever there's a politician you don't like you always compare him to Hitler but (laughs) he has literally compared himself to Hitler wow if Germany had Hitler the Philippines would have me that's (laughs) a direct quote from him so it's safe making that comparison but basically in the Philippines it's not really based on race but he has this extreme rhetoric about drug users like he says they're not human he says i'll give you a medal if you shoot one and since he became president i think something like twenty-seven thousand people have actually been murdered either by the police or by death squads which is a crazy number there are actual wars between countries where less people have died but yeah there it's not really based on race as it were because they're all filipinos it is somewhat based on class but upper class people being caught up too but if you look at like Duterte's rhetoric it is another way of us versus them so he really goes out of his way to dehumanize drug users says they have shrunken brains they're like zombies and stuff like that so even if it's not explicitly a racial thing it is an us versus them kind of thing there's always an enemy which has to be fought you know what I mean I do, and I think you accurately label him as a sort of Filipino Donald Trump, right? Yeah, in a sense, in a sense. At least Donald Trump doesn't have death squads that we know about yet. That's fair. Elsewhere in that part of the world, in China, they have a pretty extensive history with opium. What were the opium wars, and how did the Chinese government benefit off of these wars? All right, so basically in the 19th century... The British Empire was selling opium dirt cheap to China, to what was then the Chinese Empire. And they're growing it in India, I think. They basically had a monopoly on the business. Before, there are some other countries who are selling opium too, like the Portuguese. But the British really had the monopoly on it. And that did cause some addiction and problems in China. But then you have to look at the big picture. So opium's been in China for centuries, probably millennia by that point. Like it was first introduced by Arab merchants, I think, in the Silk Road. So that was way back in the Middle Ages. So opium existed. But again, it was kind of fear of the other. I'm not going to say it was racism, because if you look at the British Empire's history, pretty much all of British history is just like, oh, what's that? Oh, you think it's yours? Oh, where's your gunpowder then, mate? <laughs> The Chinese were afraid of that, and they were afraid that the Brits were using opium as a way to get leverage over their country. So that's why they originally banned opium. They said that it was because of the mass waves of addiction, but given what we know about opium now, it's not really plausible that it 
caused as much damage as the accounts from the time say. But um, but then uh, the British refused to stop selling opium, and they went to war. The British obviously won because they had gunships and cannons and the world's biggest military at the time, and pretty much forced the Chinese into accepting their opium business. And from then on, everything went downhill from China. It just lost war after war. There were like internal uprisings. And when the communists came to power after World War II, it was an easy excuse for them to say, oh, hey, look at these sneaky Brits poisoning us with opium, keeping us weak these last hundred years. We're going to stamp that out. So opium became like a symbol of weakness that the communism defeated. So it kind of reinforced their power to this day. People may not realize this, but Japan is important to the backstory of meth. You actually met members of the Yakuza gang in Tokyo. Who are the Yakuza, and when and how did they become such a fearful group in Japan and really around the world, too, to a lesser degree? So let's start with crystal meth, first of all. So crystal meth was actually invented by um, Japanese scientists in the early 20th century. And it was given to kamikaze pilots to fire them up for their last mission. Actually, all the sides in World War II, everyone except the Russians, used methamphetamine or some sort of amphetamine to keep their forces going. So it was given to Allied pilots. It was given to German troops, the Japanese kamikaze. Us Russians didn't get it so much, but we were probably drunk off our faces by that point. So we didn't really need it. <laughs> But um, after World War II ended, they had all these massive stockpiles of crystal meth that they didn't really know what to do with. And the country was devastated, obviously, as well. There was the two atomic bombs. There was the American occupation. The country was in pieces. So to make some money, the crystal meth started leaking onto the black market, where it was controlled by the Yakuza. So the Yakuza started out as wandering samurai and like different kind of tricksters and merchants in the feudal ages in Japan, it's like the medieval times. That lines existed today. They have a lot of these odd, quaint traditions. They cover themselves in these traditional Japanese tattoos from head to toe. They're actually so covered that if you look at them and they're naked, it actually looks like they're wearing clothes because it's like a full body suit of tattoos. They basically became the ones who controlled the meth trade after World War II. And these days, the power of the Yakuza's dimmed somewhat because there's been a lot of anti-gangster laws starting from the 80s. There's like this law about gangster intimidation. In theory, like they can't show their tattoos around in public because they could just go into a shop, show the shop owner their tattoo, and they'll just get free stuff. They don't have to do anything, but the shop owner would be so intimidated. That's the idea. But because they have this heritage to Japan's feudal past, they're allowed to show these traditional tattoos at festivals. So I went to a Shinto festival in Tokyo. It's actually the biggest Shinto festival in the country. And they're just walking around openly there, just showing off their tattoos. They even like take selfies with the tourists. It's really kind of odd. And unlike like the mafia or other kinds of gangs around the world, they're kind of semi-legit organizations. So you can actually look up their offices on Google Maps and call them up, you know, like Secretary Lanza, yes, Tokyo Crime Syndicate, how can I help you? Oh, that's crazy. What's the group in Japan that's scary even to the Yakuza and why? There was a 
cult in the I remember exactly when it started. I think it was like the eighties, but it was definitely around by the nineties called Am Shinrikyo, which was like a doomsday cult. And for a while they were actually um the suppliers of meth and LSD to some of the Yakuza families. So is this really strange mix between like manga comics and Buddhism and super evangelical Christianity, like end of days Christianity. <laughs> this is really strange cult and they were all constantly getting high as hell. It was mainly crystal meth and LSD. And I think the leader of the cult, he would personally give LSD to new members of the family, as it were. In the end, they were the ones who committed the famous Tokyo sarin gas attacks, which I think to this day, it's like the deadliest terrorist attack in Japan. Probably one of the few times in history where terrorists got a hold of chemical weapons, which they released on the Tokyo subway. Only like 12 or 13 people actually died, but thousands got severely poisoned. That was the point when the Yakuza realized they had to cut ties because these lunatics are just too hardcore, even for us. They even have this sort of quasi-government structure. The cult's science and tech minister, he got stabbed by a Yakuza enforcer live in front of television cameras. You can actually see it on YouTube. So he just goes up to the guy, stabs him, and then just sits there waiting for the police to arrive. Hmm. That was 1996, I think. They're still around. But funnily enough, I read that most of their base isn't in Japan anymore. Like, there's a lot of them in Russia, weirdly. Okay, speaking of Russia, you uh, obviously mentioned, Nico, that you are from Russia originally. What does Russia's war on drugs currently look like? Corruption would be, like, the main thing. We didn't have, like, this violence we see in parts of South America or Mexico anymore. What we did in the 1990s, just after communism fell, when there was like the chaotic transition to the free market, everything was up for grabs. Basically means if you had a lot of guns, you could take what you want. (laughs) Now it's not so much like that anymore because Putin and his cronies have got that under control. While there's less car bombings and drive-bys and stuff like that, there's a lot more corruption. And that goes both within the drug trafficking and what drug users face as well. So like stopping some teenagers in the park, just happening to find a small baggie of some kind of powder on them and getting like a little on the spot fine for it. That's a big earner for the police. So you have to understand police, they don't earn much money. And it's been like that way for for decades. So it's pretty much part of the accepted police culture. We've got a lot of problems as well where Little packs of drugs will just magically appear in your pocket when a policeman passes by. And there was a big case last year where a journalist was set up that way. And there were like massive, massive protests against it. And it's one of the rare cases where in Russia someone's actually freed after these mass protests. Hmm. Then again, he's a journalist. So you have to think about how many innocent people does this happen to every single day? how many of them can't pay up, and how many of them end up in prison for it. Our prison population's not as high as America, but it's still like definitely in the top five countries for incarceration in the world. How does prison provide insight on the Russian psyche and soul? <laughs> yeah, that's a common quote. It's weirdly like prison plays like a 
large role if you look at like the classic Russian novels like Crime and Punishment. And then obviously after that, you have the Gulag era under Stalin, where some ridiculous percentage of the population was imprisoned at one point or another. Yeah, I'd fair to say that culturally it's played a, a massive role. And you even see now, like some of the slang that Putin uses when he's talking about like his political opponents or like Chechen terrorists or something like that. When he says liquidate them, it's more like whack them. He's got like mafia boss slang. And like the Russian mafia evolved from prisons essentially as well. So he's taking that gangster slang which evolved from prisons and he's making it official. I was surprised to read that Russia is the single biggest consumer of heroin on the planet. Heroin addicts there will sometimes get so desperate that they'll try to recreate the drug using other powerful narcotics. What is crocodile, I'm guessing is how it's pronounced over there, or crocodile, uh, if you are translating that to English? So crocodile started appearing around the late 2000s. There were some places with the heroin shortage. Or like the user, they can't afford real heroin for whatever reason. They want to steal enough for it or whatever. So they try and make their own heroin from, at the time it was over-the-counter codeine. Because codeine is an opiate as well. At the time you could just buy it from any pharmacy. The thing is, with these experiments in your kitchen, it doesn't always end well. You're not doing it in factory conditions and the product isn't very pure. So what happens is when you inject this thing you've cooked up in your kitchen, probably while you're already hot, with all these additives in it, it starts to rot away your flesh. And you can see all these grim videos on the internet, all these poor people coming in looking like the cast of Dawn of the Dead. You know, they just have like a dead foot, like the flesh on their foot is dead. Their foot has to be sawed off. You can see the bone. They can't even feel it. They don't even feel any pain because the flesh there is just dead. Hmm. I think now at this point, the crocodile phase has died down a little bit, mainly because there's more synthetics now. So there's more, for example, stuff like fentanyl coming in, which you can buy on the dark web. A lot of the fentanyl comes in from China. So fentanyl can also be deadly, but it is a substance that's been made by people who know what they're doing, you know, not just some tweaker in his kitchen. We're going to move across Europe from Russia to Italy. It was a little bit surprising to learn that Sicily is a sort of ground zero for the heroin trade. How did Cosa Nostra or the Sicilian Mafia gain its power? And what does pizza have to do with the worldwide distribution of heroin? The Mafia, you see a lot in the movies, like The Godfather, these honorable hoodlums refuse to deal with smack because, you know, it, it ruins lives. Unlike, you know, like the loan sharking and all the other stuff they do. (laughs) But in reality, the mafia on both sides, both Italian-American mafia and the Sicilian mafia in Italy, they were both in on it pretty much since day one. There was like a phase for a while when they'd get raw opium from places like Turkey and Lebanon in the Middle East. And they'd process at first it was in France, but then like eventually production moved to Sicily after there was a crackdown in France. And Sicily became the main waypoint for heroin coming into America for a while, at least in the 1980s, or one of the main waypoints anyway. Obviously, that made certain individuals there a lot of money. Where they messed up, though, 
was eventually the mafia got too bloodthirsty and too powerful for its own good. So they started threatening politicians, killing judges, killing police chiefs. And that caused a massive crackdown on them in the 90s. Like a bunch of them were arrested, a bunch of them flipped and became state's witnesses. They just got riddled with informers. So the mafia now in Italy is a shell of what it used to be. And pizza is like another name for the protection racket there, which means once a month or so, some guys will come down to your shop, your cafe, and you'll pay them X amount of money, and they'll leave you alone, basically. If you don't, in the old days, they could kill you. Now it's more subtle, but they like smash up your windows, they'll steal your customers' cars, they'll make things more difficult for you. So there was this movement called Adio Pizzo, which means like goodbye pizza. It's a movement of business owners just refuse to pay the mafia tax. And they figured if there's just one or two of us, they can shoot us, kill us, threaten us. They can't threaten all of us. So now you can walk around Palermo and Catania, like the big cities in Sicily, and you can see these stickers saying Adio Pizza, which means that they, they proudly proclaim that they don't pay the pizza tax. And I think one of the reasons why that was allowed to happen was because the mafia was so weak because they got so bloodthirsty back in the 80s and the 90s. What's happened now is that's created an opening for a new mafia called the Ndrangheta, which is from Calabria, which is a different part of Italy. And instead of heroin, they're big players in the cocaine business now. You point out, and you just alluded to this, that Italian mafia movies, they give a nobility to Italian mobsters over other gangsters around the world. It isn't necessarily a reality. Is there anything that those Italian mob movies like The Godfather get right, though? Yeah, I'd say, especially with the first Godfather, I think it's very accurate, like, the level of power that they had with the senators and police chiefs, that you can't really get away with that level of graft these days. And another thing that was fairly accurate was a depiction of mafia racism. So there's like a scene in the first Godfather, I think it's about two thirds of the way through, where all the Dons are having a meeting and Don Corleone, the guy played by Marlon Brando, he eventually gives in and he allows the heroin business. And like one of the Dons stands up and he's like, he'll only allow allowed to be sold in like black and Puerto Rican neighborhoods because they're basically animals anyway. So let them lose their souls. And I think that's, fairly accurate assessment of how a lot of these guys tried to kind of justify their actions that they weren't selling it to their own people and you can see that a lot in italy today actually the italian mafia today there's a incident about 10 years ago i'm gonna say where like these nigerian gangsters were doing some business and they weren't paying the camorra which is the mafia in naples the appropriate fees and these Camorra dudes just went around black African neighborhood and just shot African immigrants at random. They killed like six or seven people. And there was a race riot after that. And the army actually had to be sent in to restore order. Now, going across the Atlantic to North America, we're going to start in Mexico. What is the epicenter of Mexico's drug culture and why? So there's a couple of key hotspots. The obvious one would be like the border areas, so just across the Rio Grande or Tijuana-San Diego border. But if we're talking about within Mexico, a lot of the most powerful drug lords or like the most powerful drug organizations historically have come from a state called Sinaloa. It's not quite by the border, but it's in the 
northeast and back in the 80s and early 90s when there was just one cartel the guadalajara cartel the guadalajara is not in sinaloa but a lot of the bosses came from sinaloa and there's a cemetery in culiacan which is the sinaloan capital where you can go and see all the graves of these mobsters and it looks like a small town they got the replica of the taj mahal there I mean, like some of the places where these guys are buried, they're better there than all the places I've been to alive. You know what I mean? They have air conditioning, they have like TV when family members want to visit. It's crazy. That's the area where El Chapo's from. So the famous El Chapo is the boss of the Sinaloa cartel. He hailed from the mountains of Sinaloa. Started out growing poppy there and then moved on to the big stuff as kind of like a logistics chief. So he was the one who first organized the narco tunnels, the digging tunnels across the border rather than try to smuggle stuff through the uh, the uh, normal way. You actually visited his hometown of La Tuna. Why do people love El Chapo and Sinaloa so much to this day? Well, again, it's a little bit like with the Godfather movies. There's kind of like a glorification there. There's kind of a narco culture in Sinaloa, there's a lot of songs, these narco corridos, these folk songs praising him. But also, you see this with a lot of drug lords. You see this with the Yakuza as well and Pablo Escobar. And you're seeing it now, actually, in Italy with the mafia during the corona epidemic. They try to build relationships with their community. So their community is less likely to rat them out when the time comes. So with El Chapo... If you go to his village, they have electricity there. He pretty much brought electricity there. He paved their roads. He built some of them houses. So he did a lot of stuff there. In other parts of the state, he built churches and schools and public services. So a lot of these places, they're just being ignored by the government. And so when someone like El Chapo steps in, of course, they're going to love him, you know. Who is La Barbie, and how did he help the Mexican cartels with their online presence? La Barbie has probably the least intimidating nickname of any Mexican drug kingpin. (laughs) Don't let that fool you, because he was a bad dude. He still is a bad dude. He's still alive. He's actually American. He was born in Texas, and he moved to Mexico later on. And he became... A big player and eventually controlled the city of Acapulco, which used to be a tourist resort town, and now it's just like a narco war zone. So the one way in which La Barbie stands out is he was the first one to show off these execution videos. Remember how like a few years ago, all the rage was with ISIS, with all those videos of their victims getting their heads chopped off. The Mexican cartels are actually doing that before ISIS. Barbie was the first one there were... I think three or four hitmen sent to kill him. And his men managed to snatch them up before they managed to do anything. He took them to a house. They tortured them for a bit, you know, made them spill the beans on who sent them. And La Barbie just comes in holding a camera and just shoots them one by one in the head. And he posts that on the internet as a message to others. So now all the cartels are in this sort of this game of one-upsmanship, trying to like do more and more gruesome videos to intimidate their rivals or scare the locals into into obeying them. Just send a message generally. North of the Rio Grande, Nico, although some believe the Reagan administration 
started the war on drugs. They didn't. They merely accelerated it. The war on drugs begins with Nixon. And like much of what Nixon and plenty of other presidents carried out, it was done via less than honest rationale. What did Nixon's senior aide, John Ehrlichman, admit to Harper's Magazine about deceptively demonizing certain drugs and groups of people at the same time during that Nixon era? The Nixon presidency, that was the first one where the term war on drugs came into use, and that's when the DEA was first established. A lot of the drugs we know of to be illegal today were actually illegal for a few decades already. But he was the first one to really make it into a public issue. There were people being arrested for drugs before that, but most Americans didn't care, basically. So what Nixon did, as his advisor admitted, he was fighting the Vietnam War, which was getting more and more unpopular. There were protests up and down the country. At the same time, the 1960s especially is a very revolutionary era. You had the civil rights movement. We also had some of the protests turned into riots as well, like a little bit like today, you could say. So he played on that fear of this counterculture of leftist hippies and angry black activists. And there's all this footage coming back from Vietnam of these soldiers getting stoned on heroin and smoking cannabis. So he realized he could blame that on the hippies and the black community back home. So what John Elrichman, the advisor he admitted was, if we could associate the blacks with heroin and the hippies with marijuana, then we could disrupt their meetings, vilify them on the news on a daily basis. So it's basically a cover for the Nixon administration to persecute its political opponents by using the pretext of drugs. And you can still see that today, not so much in the United States, but definitely in Russia, like I mentioned earlier, that journalist who was arrested last year. How influential was the U.S. in drugs being banned worldwide, Nico? Various countries, like, for example, we talked about China and the opium wars earlier. So like various countries, they already kind of banned certain substances for their own reasons some time ago. But there are still some other countries which are holding out. So, for example, Nepal, I think, hash was legal in Nepal until roughly the 70s. And there was uh, legal heroin production in Europe as well for a long time. But in 1961, the United States pretty much was like the ringleader of getting the United Nations to sign this treaty, which outlawed all these substances worldwide. And everyone had to play along or they'd get sanctioned, basically. So that's why, like, it's very difficult now. Like, there's some talk in places like Colombia, for example. There's some talk of legalizing cocaine. In Jamaica, there's some talk of legalizing ganja. But neither of them wants to take the first step because they're so scared of the U.S. won't stop doing business with them, will sanction them. Although other countries like China had also banned drugs, they considered this sort of internal issue. Like every country should deal with them themselves. They didn't try to impose their drug laws on other countries, although that's changing a little bit with China now. And in a sad bit of irony, the U.S. government actually fueled the crack epidemic going on in poor communities here in the early to mid-1980s. How so? Right. So in the 1980s, when the crack epidemic took off, there was also the Central American crisis. So a bunch of countries like El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua are facing leftist insurgencies. And obviously it was the Cold War. 
So, you know, Reagan couldn't let those commies have it. So he wanted to support the Contras, which were like a right-wing group in Nicaragua. But unfortunately, Congress, the boys on the hill, wouldn't allow him to do this. So he basically got the CIA and their military advisor, Oli North, to come up with an alternative plan for funding the Contras. So if you look at the map, Nicaragua is in Central America. So it's between South America, where cocaine is produced, and North America, where the gringos sniff the white powder up their noses. So they were the middle point. They were the transit point. So the CIA basically turned a blind eye to the Contras, moving their cocaine product into America. And where you see the direct connection with crack is there was this guy called Rick Ross. So he was a guy in South Central LA who supplied crack to both the Bloods and the Crips. And his supplier was a guy called Daniel Blandon, who later set him up. And Blandon was affiliated with the Contras. So you can see there's a direct link between the Contras, the CIA, and the crack epidemic. But there's a lot of conspiracy theories. It gets a bit overstated. The CIA wasn't actually like moving cocaine by itself. They just kind of ignored the people who were, and they knowingly did business with them. You know what I mean? Hmm. Now, there's no question that the drug war has disproportionately harmed minorities and poor people, especially here in America. Norm Stamper is the former chief of Seattle police who resigned after making the decision to use tear gas on protesters during a 1999 World Trade Organization conference that devolved a fairly peaceful situation into utter chaos. He's now a member of LEAP, an organization of police, judges, and prosecutors who have taken a stand against the drug war. He makes an interesting point about the fundamental flaw of American police departments, and it has to do with activity versus productivity. How so? This is not just a problem in America. It's a big problem in Russia, too. But I'm living in Britain right now, and it's more of an American thing. You can see it quite well in the show The Wire, if you've ever watched that. Everyone's obsessed with statistics. Like statistics are like how the higher ups determine how well you're doing your job. It's like the more arrests you're getting or the more cases you're solving, the better you're doing basically. And like the more chance you get of a bonus or promotion. So there's like an incentive for certain police officers to go out there and make loads of low level arrests. So it looks like they're doing a much better job than they otherwise would be. It's not really actual police work. They're not like solving crimes like murders or like burglaries or robberies, which actually like harm the community so much. It's like low level drug offenses. Like you see some grow up to like a black or a Hispanic neighborhood because they're the easiest targets. Uh, You see like some corner boys, some 14, 15 year old corner boys dealing crack. You roll up on them, arrest them, boom. It's another few points on your card. And that kind of policing, it's not really solving anything because those corner boys, like once they're gone, another one's just going to pop up 15 minutes later. So you haven't actually reduced crime or drugs in the community much at all. You've made yourself look good, but you've also like destroyed trust with the community itself. How many people are going to, especially like young people fitting a certain profile, how many of them are going to trust you, the police force? How many of them are going to come forward as witnesses to a case? They're going to see you as your enemy because you're always just rolling up on them on these pathetic low-level charges. 
So it's really poisoned the well in terms of police community relations. Now, you not only point out problems going on currently around the world with drugs and also talking about the history of some of these countries with drugs, but you do offer some reasons for hope in dope world, beginning in Portugal. I remember reading the stories from around 2001 about Portugal decriminalizing all drugs. How has that policy or the change in policy affected things in Portugal over the last couple of decades? Right. So first, I think it's important to say, because there's a lot of confusion about this. So Portugal decriminalized drugs, then legalized drugs. So what decriminalization means is it's not a priority and it's not an arrestable crime for the police. You'd have to be doing something really stupid to get arrested, like, I don't know, smoking a crack pipe in front of a nursery school, in front of a kindergarten in broad daylight, you know, while the kids are there. And like, <laughs> case i think probably you deserve to be arrested because you're being a public nuisance the police don't unlike in america like we just talked about they're not searching for those easy numbers like arresting people for having like a bag of weed in their pocket there's just no incentive for them it's not considered a crime and if you do get caught basically you don't get charged criminally you get put before a committee of like a social worker and psychiatrist and they give you the option to talk about your problems So what that's done is that's brought the drug problem out in the open. So it's easier for people who do have a drug problem or like an addiction problem to talk about it and to get help. They don't fear being arrested at every turn. What's happened is you can definitely see that there's been no strong rise in the use of drugs. That's what a lot of politicians were afraid of, that Portugal would become this kind of narco state. Or at least they'll become like the Netherlands. All the tourists have come there and get high and no consequences. That hasn't happened at all. The level of overdoses has fallen somewhat as well. The level of HIV infections from people sharing needles has fallen. There's one problem though, like a lot of people criticize it for not going far enough. It's like they haven't actually gone far enough to legalizing cannabis or offering heroin on prescription like they do in some other countries. So a lot of the problems to do with drugs still remain, you know, it's still controlled by like different gangster factions and things like that. But, you know, it's like a good step forward and someone had to take it. So I salute them. Nico, I'm not sure if you're ever planning on doing a follow-up for this book, but you did visit a lot of places, but you couldn't go everywhere. If there was one other place that you could have visited hypothetically for this book, where would that be? You know, it's funny you should say that. I'm actually working on um, kind of a sequel right now. I want to focus more on Africa and Asia. I feel like that's something that's been kind of ignored, like with all the narco stuff in South America. So everyone knows about Pablo Escobar now. Everyone knows about El Chapo. But how many know about the biggest producer of methamphetamine in the world? It's actually in Burma, next to Thailand. Or like the biggest consumer of all sorts of narcotics is actually becoming Africa, like the fastest growing consumer. And they've got a big heroin and HIV crisis there with all the stuff that's coming over from Pakistan. So across the Indian Ocean, I feel that'll be an interesting area to check out. Good luck with that. He is Nico Vorobyov, a writer whose first book is a modern and historical look at illegal substances. It's called Dope World, Adventures in the Global Drug Trade, and you can get it now wherever books are sold. Nico, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this great book.
All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. I hope to speak again soon. And thank you for listening today. You can check out all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please do leave a five-star rating and review. It helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.